This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Knowledge, advice, and insight into starting, building, and managing a small business. Here is your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Mind Your Business on SiriusXM's business radio powered by the Warden School. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm the Senior Editor of Entrepreneurship at Forbes. As usual today, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. This show is about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we want to have those conversations with you. If you've been struggling with something running your business, call us at one 844 Wharton, that's one 942 7866 And let me emphasize, as always, this is a safe space for business owners. If you're struggling with something, someone else listening to this show is probably struggling with it too. In other words, there are no stupid questions. With me today to discuss those questions is a very special first-time guest, Dave Wharton. Dave was a co-founder of Drugstore.com. He's a reformed venture capitalist. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And he's founder of the Tugboat Institute, an organization that is trying to redefine what it means to be successful in business. Dave and Tugboat espouse a philosophy they call evergreen, which encourages business owners to focus on building a business that will last uh, rather than building a business that can be sold for a quick profit. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Dave. Lauren, hello. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's great to have you here. I want to start by clearing up something about your name right away. I'm sitting here in a studio at the Wharton School, but but it's not the Dave Wharton School, is it? Uh, No, unfortunately, no. (laughs) And you spell your name a little bit differently. You are W-H-O-R-T-O-N, and we here at Wharton are are W-H-A-R-T-O-N. Just to eliminate any possible confusion, um, but uh, let's uh, let's get into it. Tell us tell us about Evergreen. How would you define Evergreen for uh, listeners who have not heard of it before? Yeah, thanks for asking. So I define Evergreen as a set of values around building a company that will last for generations. So instead of a time horizon of three to five, maybe ten years, the time horizon of an Evergreen company is ten, twenty, and in many cases over a hundred years. And and really with the help of some of the early entrepreneurs and CEOs that got involved in kind of thinking about this with me, uh, we were able to define uh, what we call the Evergreen 7 Ps, which has done, I think, a fairly nice job of uh, putting some framework and definition on what it means to be evergreen. And uh, is it okay if I run us through those 7 Ps, Lauren? Uh, it is. Great. So the, the, th- the first three of those Ps uh, really speak to the kind of the character of the owners and the leadership team. And those three are purpose, perseverance, and people first. And uh, the purpose being not to uh, use the company as a vehicle to generate wealth just for the owners, but for something much deeper than that. And everybody in our community, and I'd say every, Evergreen, has their own variation on purpose. It may be around the relationship they want to have with their employees. It may be around a way they want to see a market change, uh, market inefficiency. It might be kind of a vision for how the world should operate someday in the future. And so that that purpose is really important. That's really the North Star of the organization. And I would argue really leads into the next two, which is perseverance and people first. And perseverance is really uh, preparing yourself for the long haul and knowing that there'll be many economic cycles. Uh, They'll be good, they'll be bad. And you have to really take advantages of the bad and not get too heady in the good. And uh, it, it's a it's a orientation, a mental orientation, as well as it's a, a structural orientation. So for companies in Evergreen, taking on a lot of debt uh, is not of much interest at all. Uh, most of the Evergreen companies have very, very modest debt because uh, they do realize that, you know, it is useful, uh, but in often cases when things happen unexpectedly and things always happen unexpectedly, that debt could get you in quite a bit of trouble. And then the third, people first, is, uh, is the one probably people talk about the most, and it's an orientation. And Herb Kelleher talks about the Southwest, and other great CEOs have talked about this too. But the, the view that really in being of service to your employees, and uh, you know, Howard Bihar from Starbucks talks about this in Servant Leadership, um, in being in service to your employees and doing that well, they will then take care of your customers and your suppliers and your communities and your families, and if you have investors, your investors. But the, the view that, that that really is where it all starts, because 
most businesses today, it's all about the human capital, much more than the IP or the equipment that's sitting in the facility. So those first three is, is, are really around the character of the organization. And then the next four are really around what it means to be evergreen from a more of a strategy orientation, and that is private, profit, paced growth, and pragmatic innovation. And I'll hit those just very quickly. Uh, private being a commitment to stay private for the long haul, knowing that either as a public company you will have um, potentially put short-term pressures on you to do things you wouldn't do otherwise, or as a company that has taken on investors, whether it be venture capital or private equity, they expect an exit sometime in the near future, um, that, that will actually potentially distort your, your long-term path and your, and your purpose. And so it's a commitment to be private and then really take advantage of the opportunity to operate in an environment where you don't have to report to others about your strategy and things you're doing. Profit is, you know, truly the best measure of customer value delivered. You know, can you deliver something um, to customers that they value much more than it costs your delivery? And it's what allows you to sustain yourself for the long haul and reward your employees and to have pay increases and be able to invest in facilities and new projects. Um, but doing it from your own profitability being very important, which leads into pace growth. And pace growth is the idea that you don't want to grow so slow that you stellify, but not so fast that you outstrip the culture or the resources of the company financially. But there's kind of a zone in which over a very long period of time, they say you're growing 15, 20, 25% a year, maybe 10% a year, maybe for smaller companies, 30 or 40% a year, that sustaining that over very long periods of time, let's say an average growth rate of 15 to 20% over 20 years, you will build a meaningful company. Uh, by venture standards, in the first five to seven years, it's not going to look very attractive. But for your own standards, if you're achieving your purpose, treating your people well, 20 years later, you're going to have a very significant company. And then lastly, uh, pragmatic innovation is just the, the realization that the world's changing dynamically and it's happening fast. And to be a, a evergreen company, you have to be able to innovate at all levels of the organization. And it ties very much into being people first, too. Um, if your people are empowered and they're engaged and they really care about the company, they'll surprise you. They'll come up with all kinds of ways to innovate inside your business. They could be process in innovations, product innovations, geographical innovations, but you really want to unlock that. And so it just becomes core to the DNA of the business because whatever you are today, you will not be in 100 years. And the pathway through that is going to be a lot of change and a lot of innovation. I'm speaking with Dave Wharton. He's the founder of the Tugboat Institute. Uh, he uh, espouses a philosophy called Evergreen. You've just heard the uh, the seven Ps, the principles behind it. Uh, if you have a question about how this might apply to your business, please call us. We're at 844-942-7866. Dave, all those uh, Ps make perfect sense. Um, it's a little bit like, um, you know, mom and apple pie. How could you argue with uh, with much of that? And yet that does raise an obvious question. If it, if it makes so much sense, why don't more companies do it? Well, it's interesting, Lauren. I'm glad you said this. I actually think it's, it's more of a traditional method of company building, whether you, might, you would have seen probably fairly commonly you know, 50 to 100 years ago, where there wasn't the venture and private equity industry, where there wasn't as robust a public market, most people were building their own businesses and building it with values similar to this. Um, and, and I'd say, I think there's a lot of folks that actually are doing this. And what we often find is people say, you know, I've never really had a way to articulate this before, but now that I've heard the word evergreen, I like it. And now that I've seen the seven Ps, that's actually how I operate my business. But when I read most common media and business school or whatever publications, you know, I haven't really heard this language before. So much of it is about incubating companies out of Silicon Valley, about lean uh, techniques. You know, how do you get uh, market share quickly? How do you raise your venture around? How do you get a high-valued exit? You know, all those things. And they don't hear people talking about these more um, perhaps, you know, you could say traditional values, but really great values. And, you know, um, I'd say people... I think there's an awareness building about that, and I think uh, and I think that's what we're tapping into. You know, it, it might help um, if you uh, walked us through an example of uh, of an evergreen company. Uh, you you run a, a terrific summit that I was an annual summit that I've been fortunate enough to attend the last two years, um, and uh, you spoke this year uh, at some length about the experiences of In and Out Burger. Uh, the fast food chain in California that got started about the same time as uh, the McDonald brothers, uh, but took a, a different path. Would you want to share a little bit of that? I think it might drive home the, the differences you're talking about. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And I appreciate you asking. So um, 
in and out started kind of just after uh, World War II, and it, it was a co-founding team, husband and wife, uh, the Snyders. And their, their uh, desire was to kind of tap into the energy that was happening around the formation of freeways, the GI Bill, lots of families growing. And there was a kind of a natural interest in, in fast foods and convenience dining at that period of time. And so they opened up a small hamburger shop and had, had kind of a, a core set of values uh, that they believed were very important. And one is they wanted to have a very high-quality product. Um, all of the ingredients would be fresh and they'd be very high-quality. Second is is that they wanted to um, treat their employees well, their associates, and they really, I like to say, I think they really loved the people uh, that they worked with, and um, and then they also wanted to have some innovations. They wanted to, you know, the first real drive-through, um, the idea of being in and out. That was not an idea that was common at the time. <laughs> And, you know, they invented the two-way speaker at the end of the driveway so you could place your order as you're coming in. Well, now everybody has that. Um, but at the time, nobody was doing that. It was kind of car hops and sit-down dining. And they stuck with it. And as you said, the McDonald brothers got started at a similar time, and then Ray Kroc effectively took over control of the company. And uh, whether it be Burger King or um, uh, McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken, the goal was get big fast, just like we're here today in Silicon Valley, right? Get big fast. This is a big thing. It's a big market. If you don't move and make it happen, you know, you're going to lose. And those companies all either were sold or went public, raised a tremendous amounts of capital, leveraged fran- franchisings to hit their footprint very quickly. And the Snyders weren't looking at it this way. You know, Harry and Esther were like, you know, we're going to grow as fast as we can from really two constraints or three constraints. One is do we have the cash on our balance sheet to do it without borrowing money? Two is do we have an associate that's ready to run that that new location? And three is can we actually get a location that's got high visibility and high traffic that doesn't cost too much? And that led them to kind of building a, under a very paced growth standpoint. So if you look at in and out and let's say the mid-60s compared to McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken and others, you'd think they were losers. You'd say, oh, my gosh, there are 10 locations. These others at 4,000 locations. But guess what? That tortoise kept going. And through um, their son and then eventually through their granddaughter, they've continued to scale that business. And, you know, today that business is probably doing close to a billion in revenue, uh, 335 locations, still delivering the freshest product, still treating their associates well, still deliberately growing the business. And so I would argue that while there was a moment in time where they looked like they could have been losing the entire market, they've actually proven that they are long-term winners. And I think there's many, many communities across the country that would die to have an In-N-Out burger come to their location. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really to highlight that, you know, there are, uh, there are other ways to build businesses. And Evergreen is actually a very, very potentially very attractive way of doing it too, but it takes a degree of patience and takes a much longer planning horizon. And it's got to be a bit of a tough sale, uh, especially in Silicon Valley, uh, where you operated uh, successfully for for quite some time. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of conversations you have with people there? Does this do you find this is making more sense to them or is it's the focus still uh, even in people with people, you know, on um, kind of the land grab getting big as, as quickly as possible? Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of leading the answer, but yes, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a harder conversation, but I'll give credit for the evergreens that are in the Bay area. They are very strong because they've had to make a very deliberate decision not to take the other path. And, and they have they to explain will, it to their friends pretty do. much on a daily basis, right? The friends, employees that are recruiting, um, you know, the communities are, you know, you kind of overlap with these folks. You, uh, and what ends up happening is um, it can wear you down. And so one of the nice things about bringing folks together, which you attended you know, a couple of weeks ago, is just to remind folks there are other like-minded folks out there like you. Now, I do find that in the Midwest, this is more common. I found it more common in Texas, in the Southeast. Uh, we haven't seen it as much, but I have to believe in New York and Boston uh, and other areas like that, uh, there has to be many evergreens. And they may just be keeping their head down, right? Sure. <laughs> you know, they're not really seeing a group that's really resonating with them. I'm speaking with Dave Warden, founder of the Tugboat Institute. If you have a question about venture capital, uh, about the evergreen approach to building a business, uh, or any aspect of building your own business, call us. We're at one eight four four warden one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Dave, is there a is there a right time to go evergreen? Can you do it as a startup? Can you do it as a mature company? Uh, what works best? 
you know, I, I, I think it's very helpful if early in the kind of life cycle of the business that there's kind of a conscious decision around this. Um, because if you have taken on financial partners, for example, that uh, you need to have an exit, you've got a moral commitment to them. It's not a legal commitment, right? They, they, they raise capital uh, to return that capital in a certain amount of time. So, you know, I, I, you know, I won't I, name names, but you had a couple of entrepreneurs um, at your summit who uh, raised money, I believe, uh, venture capital uh, and are in the process now of trying to uh, buy out those investors. Uh, is yeah, that correct? That, that's correct. We, the two are in process right now, and one already completed uh, last year. That and can't be an easy process. No, no, it's not because you know. And, and again, people are rational. You know, if you're a venture capitalist and you've invested in a company that is is tracking really nicely and looks like it's going to be a winner, you know, you want to see that exit at a nice, uh, a very high valuation, frankly. And uh, that's kind of how the how that uh, that playbook works. Where if you're an entrepreneur trying to buy back your shares, you know, you might have limited resources. You may be borrowing some money. You may have uh, put some cash on the balance sheet. Maybe you've got a friend who's got some resources that's willing to kind of play long ball with you and help. But you have to be able to negotiate negotiate a fair deal, right? Because the buyer has to feel they're getting a fair deal as well as the seller. And so uh, I can't say it's easy. So, um, it, but it can be done. Uh, I, I think it, it will be ha- happen less frequently than you might want. But back to your original question, you know, if, if you do this as a bootstrap and never raise outside capital, then you have the freedom to stay evergreen forever. Or if you raise money from friends or family and you're very honest with them about what you're planning on doing. I mean, don't lie to them. Just say, look, I, I'd like to run this for the rest of my life. I'd like it to stay private for the rest of my life. I don't see an opportunity to actually return your capital to you. At least I can't make that commitment. But, you know, as I start generating profits, I'll, I'll issue dividends to you. And I would hope those dividends would be quite attractive. And if I build a very large business, those dividends could be extremely attractive. But the way I'm going to give you a return on your capital, because you invested it as capital, is through that mechanism. And if you can get people kind of in agreement with you on it, that's terrific because then you have no end date to your business. Let me emphasize, you, um, you're not a, a socialist. You're not a hippie. You, in fact, uh, paid your dues coming up through the more traditional system. You worked at a very prominent venture capital firm, uh, Kleiner Perkins. Um, do you think is there ever uh, a time to raise venture capital? Is it right for any business? Yeah, I, I don't think again, any of this is binary. I think that um, venture capital plays an incredibly important role in our society. I think private equity um, plays a very important role. But it isn't the only role. It isn't the only game. And I think that's what's kind of happened is just in popular culture and business circles and the media, et cetera, we've really narrowed our definition of success. And so my view is that Evergreen is absolutely a, a viable alternative to building a great company. So back to your question, yes, there are certain markets, there are certain industries, there are certain countries in which um, it, being an Evergreen for that particular opportunity might not be fast enough. For example, if you were building a company that was going to be a uh, has the natural orientation to a winner-take-all market, monopoly-type situation like an eBay, um, you would be extremely well-served to capitalize that well enough to secure leadership in that, that area um, or at least be a really strong, fast follower that hopefully can overtake the current winner. And in some cases, that becomes arms races. You know, I, I can't imagine building Uber as an evergreen company today. I mean, the, the amount of resources they've raised, billions and billions of dollars, uh, you know, that really... Uh, I don't think that would be available or smart for an evergreen company to do. But I do think there is a number of market opportunities where people way overemphasize the need for external capital and going fast. And I think In-N-Out is a perfect example. You can talk to you know entrepreneurs building restaurants and retail today that are very anxious if, uh, if they haven't raised $25, $50, million, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to compete in a very short time frame. For market leadership. And if those entrepreneurs were comfortable taking a much longer time frame, they could build, frankly, a very successful business because they've got happy customers, happy employees, and they just need to grow at a pace that allows them to continue as Harry did and Esther Snyder. You've got the resources, you've got the team ready to do it, and you found the location you want to go to. And that may be some years you don't grow at all, and some years you grow a lot. Um, but again, that's, that, that's not conventional wisdom. Actually, there's a there's kind of a modern day example of In and Out Burger with uh, Danny Meyer and Shake Shack, which took a long time to develop its formula. You know, it, Shake Shack started as a seasonal hamburger stand, um, and 
I don't know the exact numbers, but I think it might have been 10 years before they had a second location and then even started thinking about uh, expanding. But, of course, they have gone uh, public in the last couple of years. I was disappointed to see that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I do want to highlight this, too, because we're talking about, a lot about restaurants. This isn't just about restaurants. Sure. The, Good the point. The been just the most pleasant surprise for me is we've kind of had people come join the Tugboat Institute. So we've got folks coming from 25 different industries now. And we've got, you know, CPG, we've got software, we've got construction, we've got business services, we've got security, we've got agriculture, we've got auto dealership, um, agriculture dealerships. I mean, it's just, it's, it, there's a long list of industries. And that has just been such a pleasant surprise for me that people are building evergreens in every industry. And the other thing is, you, if you look at a map of the United States where our members come from, they come from every state now. And that's also been really refreshing, including places like Palo Alto and New York City. <laughs> And Boston and Austin and, you know, places that you would think naturally those companies would all be venture-backed or private equity-backed. So that, that's that been quite quite refreshing. And the other, the last piece that I really have enjoyed is that about 25% of our community is multi-generational family businesses who are operating under the evergreen values. And so they're kind of like evergreen family businesses. And they've de- they demonstrated over very long periods of time affinity to these values, including we've got companies in our community that are 160 years old. And that's a wonderful thing to have. And I know you've met many of these uh, yourself, Lauren, through, this, through our gatherings. They've actually demonstrated longevity. So it's not just theoretical. I mean, we've got guys that started during the Civil War, and they've, and they've got very strong, successful companies. Why don't you give us an example of uh, one of your members uh, that's been around for a while uh, and is not in the restaurant business? Well, you know, let's talk about Radio Flyer, for example. Radio Flyer just celebrated its 100th anniversary last year. And, and uh, that's the sled business, correct? Yeah, I think I, I think they'd probably associate with the wagon business, the little red wagon right. that we all seem to have had as kids, and I still have one in my garage. I mean, it's a, it's it's a beloved brand, and it's a wonderful company. I, I was uh, Robert Passon was kind enough to invite me to their hundredth anniversary celebration in Chicago last year, and to meet his family, to meet his employees, his executives, all these people in the community. I mean, that's just a wonderful company, very well run, very innovative. Um, I'd say, you know, it's one of those environments you walk in and you just feel the energy of the employees because they're they're happy. They enjoy their work and they're contributing. And so uh, that that would be an example. And I think, you know, Robert's full intention is that the company be around for another 100 years as an evergreen company. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong about this, but if I I remember, uh, Robert spoke last year uh, about product development a little bit and um, (laughs) about uh, doing market research with your customers. And they did that at one point and found that a lot of their customers believed that Radio Flyer was selling a tricycle. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And in fact, I think it was a similarly named brand, but they did not in fact sell a tricycle. But based on that market research, they decided that they should be selling a tricycle and introduced one that I think possibly became a bestseller. Do I have that right? Absolutely. I thought that was hilarious. People kept saying, oh, I remember my little my little tricycle I had from you guys. And he's like, um, we've never manufactured a tricycle. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was great. I guess that's yeah. evidence of a pretty strong brand. Yeah, and I think you had a good thing, too, is that, you know, if you wanted to be a skeptic of Evergreen, just say, well, you know, they're not that innovative, right? The innovative ones are the ones that are probably getting venture capital. That's a very innovative company. And if you go to their website and you look at all the different things you can do to, like, configure your own wagon, I'd say they're on the cutting edge of personalization. So, you know, you can, you can be an incredible company and dynamic company as Evergreen. You know, and as you know, this fall we'll be visiting with Enterprise Rental Car, which I consider to be an evergreen exemplar. And this is another example of a company that's been around for a, a very long time. And, and a very large company. And very, yeah, yeah, you know, over $20 billion in revenue. And when Andy Taylor took that over from his dad, Jack, there had been about $78 million in revenue, regional business. And, uh, and he took it over as a younger man than he anticipated because his dad had some health issues at the time. Do you know about and, when that was? Oh, boy. No, I don't. I, I, I shouldn't guess. Um, a while ago. Um, and Decades. Under his stewardship, 78 to 20 billion plus. I mean, incredible. And, you know, they're global. Uh, and they are in, they are truly an innovator in, in many dimensions of what they do. And I also think they're respected as being, if not the largest employer of college graduates in the country, they're by far, I would argue, the best employer of college graduates because they have an incredible training program take somebody straight out of school and within two years turn them into a manager of a store that runs their own P&L. I mean, a very entrepreneurial 
type of pathway for a young person coming out of college. So just you got to love a company like like Enterprise. That, that's a you know a, a big uh, company with a lot of capital requirements. Do you know how they raised the capital they needed to build that business to such a size? Oh, I believe it's all been internal, all generated by profits. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they borrow against some of the fleets and things because you know they've got a tremendous amount of capital and assets, uh, and so that'd be what you might consider normal borrowing, but nothing extraordinary, no, nothing that would ever put the company at risk. I'm speaking with Dave Wharton. Uh, he's the founder of the Tugboat Institute. We're talking about the evergreen philosophy of building businesses, uh, businesses built built to last, not to, to be sold. Uh, if you have a question for us, please give us a call. We're at 1-844-942-7866. Dave, is there, is there a, a line that you would draw if somebody's listening to this show, th- sitting there with a, a startup thinking, hmm, does this make sense for me or not? Do, you know, am I in the Uber camp or uh, am I in the uh, Radio Flyer or Enterprise camp? Uh, what's, where's the line drawn? Is it simply um, about the, the capital requirements or is there, are there other factors that you would encourage them to think about? As they're thinking about whether they should go evergreen or go uh, kind of the, the exit path? Yeah. Yeah, I, it, it's really up to you. I mean, what, what do you want from your life experience? You know, and I would argue that if, if you have an idea in a market that you think um, you can build a company successfully over a very long period of time, I think it's a very attractive approach from kind of the relationship you'll have with your family, with your employees. It's a very positive way to build a company. You can be a very strong uh, contributor to your community because you don't have masters, again, are expecting you to sell the business, take the business public. You you can really focus on the customer experience, the employee experience, your community experience. Um, And so I, I... I think it's one of those things that, you know, it it really comes down to your interest. And I think it's, for many cases, it's harder for young entrepreneurs to visualize this because, you know, the idea of, um, you know, walking up and down Sand Hill Road and, you know, getting term sheets and all that, that's a very invigorating, exciting thing. And it also gives you a tremendous sense of validation that people like your ideas. I find for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's a little bit about knowing yourself, they actually don't need that. They're... um, they're not uh, need external validation because they have such a strong sense of what they're trying to do themselves that they um, you know they, they don't need somebody putting them on a magazine cover or telling them that they're great and offering them a term sheet. They just simply know if I can achieve this purpose over a long period of time, I'm going to do tremendous good in the world, and I feel like I've I've done something meaningful with my life. But that's think- also the the rub, isn't it? I mean, you you don't just get the validation and the exposure yeah. by uh, going to Sand Hill Road. You you get capital as well. And if um, if somebody's trying to build a business, they're they're running a startup. Even if they're not thinking uh, in Uber like terms, they might need capital. Uh, wh- what alternatives do you suggest? Yeah, there's, I'd say there's not a lot today, and we hope to help on this in the future. But you know, this would be again friends, family, relatives, uh, maybe somebody you worked for in the past that's uh, had some success. And they, those might be some sources of capital and, and customers, right? Sometimes and, you can get. Well, that's ex- thank you. That's exactly the thing. Next is that if you're very deliberate about your business plan and your customer rela- or your business model and your customer relationships right up front, knowing that you want to generate cash early you might structure those customer contracts different. You might structure your business model different. And that can be really important because you could have a capital-intensive business model versus a capital-light business model in the same industry and really thinking that through carefully because a lot of entrepreneurs don't, right? They're like, oh, this is the way it's kind of done in the business, right? But if your objective is not to put yourself in a position where you have to raise a lot of capital in the future, you might say, look, here's a, a different business model. This is a capital-light business model. This is There's a customer in addition to customer contract relationship, maybe prepayments or something like that, that all might help you um, be, again, being deliberate up front. Because after you set your business model and you're five years into it, it's going to be harder to change it. Let's take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, I want to talk to Dave some more about his own experiences and what uh, led him down this path and got him thinking this way. Um, If you have questions about his experience or about your experience, about what you're doing running your business, or if you have comments uh, about 
why this uh, does make sense for you or doesn't make sense for you, uh, please call us. We're at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Our producer Michelle is standing by. You don't need to wait. You can call right now, and we'll have more with Dave Warden in just a minute. You're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman, and this is Business Radio powered by the Warden School on Sirius XM one eleven. Welcome back to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm here with Dave Warden. Dave was a co-founder of Drugstore.com. He's a former venture capitalist. And now, as founder of the Tugboat Institute, he's trying to get us to uh, to think a little bit about what it means to be successful in business. The Tugboat Institute is a membership organization for CEOs, for business owners who believe businesses should be evergreen, meaning they should be built to last, not built to sell. Uh, and if you have a question for Dave, either about his experience or about your own business, call us. We're at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let's let's take a phone call right now. Sarah in Florida, welcome to Mind Your Business. Hi, thank you. What's on your mind, Sarah? Well, um, I opened a yoga business um, almost a year ago, mm-hmm. and I I know I never thought I was going to feel this way, but I'm actually thinking of doing an exit plan. And I'm just calling to ask, you know, for advice on the best type of exit plan. Uh, Tell us why. Uh, Why are you thinking of uh, exiting your business, Sarah? Well, I, you know, I I started with a big dream. I opened a um, yoga studio in an area that, you know, didn't really have much options for yoga. And um, so I kind of, I've really struggled with, um, I guess, penetrating the market, so to speak, because of that, of the uh, unfamiliarity with the community and yoga. So I'm just really struggled and and the people that do um, want to come and do yoga, you know, they want, they expect it to be um, very cheap or free. They don't understand that it's an actual business. And I'm in, you know. <laughs> That's a problem. Yeah. And I think yoga is just something, you know, that should be offered for free. Dave, do you have any thoughts? Um, this isn't exactly the situation that you <laughs> contemplate uh, with Evergreen, um, but you're uh, you're an experienced uh, business person. I know you've dealt with businesses that have struggled before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, unfortunately, I, I don't have any good advice for you, Sarah, on this one. Um, you know, because you're 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 a smaller business. You know, maybe there's an employee that you've worked with that you'd be willing to sell the business to, or there's another uh, person who owns uh, perhaps a few yoga studios in the area that you might consider selling the business to. Um, yeah. And, and it might be one of those things you have to give them a chance to kind of buy it out over a period of time, right? Instead of just writing a larger check on day one, you know, maybe pay you out over a, a few year period just so it softens it for them. Um, <laughs> But David, it sounds like Sarah might be confronting an issue that I know happens in Silicon Valley a lot, which is, you know, occasionally you can be a little bit ahead of your time. And uh, yoga uh, for much of the company uh, of country is nothing new, but it sounds like she's in an area where it is a a little bit new and people aren't uh, as attuned to its benefits and its value. Um, Based on your experience, do you you have, you know, how how can she assess whether... Uh, it's worth hanging in there. Well, it, it's interesting because I think, Sarah, it sounds like you've actually assessed this pretty well. You know, you're, the market's not responding the way you thought in the location you're in. And I, I think this uh, kind of draws a question, that, uh, kind of a bigger question, which is, you know, in starting the business, what was your purpose, right? What were you really trying to achieve in doing this? And if, um, you know, if this first sort of location just didn't work, there's potentially a tremendous amount of learning you've done, whether you realize it or not, about what might be a better location. And so, you know, people have done this, of course, from time to time, where, like, they have to go through a process of learning about where their customers really are. And, you know, maybe this isn't the place. But maybe there's another place um, within a reasonable distance from you that might be a much better fit. It, it kind of reminds me of one woman entrepreneur that I got to know um, a few years ago that, uh, she had to go through this process herself, but she was so committed to building her company, and this is in the bakery space, 
uh, she knew she had great products and, you know, and hopefully you're delivering great yoga services, but she wasn't getting the right okay. locations. And then she found that if she walked neighborhoods for weeks and literally looked at the people and did they have, strangely enough, were they walking dogs? Was there kids in these neighborhoods? And she was looking for certain signals for her particular bakeries, and then she really dialed this in, and then suddenly it completely changed. And so same product, but now got the right locations, and uh, the business has done very well. Right. I think that's great advice because I have learned a lot about this um, journey that I've been on, and I keep thinking, and I've you know been told it takes a couple of years. I understand in any business to start you know reaping the benefits financially, um, and that's not the total purpose for why I opened it. However, I do need to eat. Yes. So, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, you kind of, both of you kind of summarized, you know, how I'm feeling about all of this. So thank you. Thank you for your call, Sarah. We appreciate it. And if you have a question about your business or about uh, Evergreen and the Tugboat Institute, Dave Wharton, please give us a call at one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Dave, let's talk a little bit about uh, about your experience. Uh, you uh, helped found uh, one of those uh, land grab businesses, uh, drugstore dot com. Uh, did your experience there uh, influence your thinking uh, about this at all? You know, it, it, not, drugstore less so. Um, I had a company that I worked with, an older entrepreneur uh, when I was twenty four years old, is in the industrial laser. CO2 laser business, and we effectively bootstrapped that company quite successfully. So I had kind of in my mind a, a bootstrapper's model before I was even exposed to venture capital. And then in joining Kleiner Perkins and starting Drugstore.com uh, with Jed Smith and Peter Newport, um, that company quickly moved up to Seattle where Peter was located. He came out of Microsoft, and he really built it. And so I wasn't in the day-to-day -day activities of that. But I did start a company post-Kleiner Perkins called Good Technology, and raised money from Kleiner Perkins and Benchmark, and then eventually raised another $60 million about six months later um, on, a, on a, basically a pivot business plan in you know, 18, 19 slides and set us on that kind of rocket course. And, yes, that was, that was a firsthand experience, what it was like to raise a lot of capital, have a high burn rate. Uh, we found ourselves competing very quickly with RIM and its BlackBerry products. Um, I think we had a superior uh, software product. I think we had a great team. Uh, but they were much larger because they were selling other hardware products and had greater resources than we did. And it, it, it became a very difficult fight. And if the iPhone had shown up a year earlier, it might have been a very different story <laughs> for good. You were ahead but, of your yeah. time, just yeah. as we were discussing. Yeah. And, uh, but it was, it was a really good lesson in that, you know, uh, that took a tremendous toll on me, uh, the CEO that I brought in, the management team, and the employees, you know, to try to compete at that level. Um, but, you know, that, that was probably the right approach to go after an incumbent that it would quickly realize that market opportunity that we had um, and just had a lot more resources. So yes, that, that did form my opinion. And the other one, that uh, two other examples, one was I worked at Hewlett Packard starting when I was 15 years old and um, it was kind of how I ended up ultimately putting myself through Berkeley. Uh, but I spent four summers working there and and I worked on the manufacturing lines. And what I, I noted, and this was really my first professional experience or work experience where I got a paycheck, uh, the, the employees there loved Dave and Bill and had held them in such high esteem. And they would tell me stories. And these stories were actually larger than life. The true stories were great. But they <laughs> you know, really blew these up to be the big fish stories. But they were wonderful. And they all were about how they treated people. And so that was also something that was playing in my head, that corporations are good. They treat people well. They deliver valuable products to customers. And, um, and so that was kind of a piece of it. And then another piece of it was a woman that I backed at Kleiner Perkins, Jessica Heron. And she started a company coming out of Stanford Business School in the wedding uh, registry business. And uh, we funded it well. We brought in uh, uh, Rebecca Patton as a professional CEO. Martha Stewart went on the board of directors. And we kind of set on a path to take it public very quickly because a lot of companies were being taken public very quickly. And then the market closed. And that company was merged into two other companies, the Wedding Channel and the Knot. And Jessica stayed through all of this, and what she ended up doing is kind of coming to me in the kind of 2005 time frame and said, look, I'm going to start another business, but this time I want to run it for the rest of my life. And my goal is to be, um, you know, or my exit strategy will be to rolled up, be rolled out of my office on a gurney with an oxygen tank on my lap. And I kind of laughed and said, <laughs> oh, you're going to build a lifestyle business. And boy, she bristled. And she's like, Dave, 
(laughs) (laughs) I'm just as ambitious, if not more, than I was when I came to see you at Kleiner Perkins. This is a better business model, Stella and Dot. Um, And I think uh, think you're you're miscalibrating this. And I said, well, what kind of scale are you talking about? She goes, well, I'd like to build this over time to a billion dollars in revenue. I said, oh, come on, Jessica. If you're going to do that, you're going to have to raise at least a quarter million dollars, or a quarter billion dollars to build the brand, because that's the rule of thumb now. If you want to build a nationally known brand in three to five years, it's going to be a quarter billion dollars. And she said, Dave, listen to me. My time horizon is 20 to 25 years. In that time frame, through word of mouth and through my own cash resources, I can do that. I can actually build the brand to that scale. And so she really uh, started trying to take my blinders off. And I think the seed of that idea is I saw her succeed in the market and go 30, 60, 100, 200 million in revenue, being profitable, um, you know, building the business in, in the fashion that she wanted, not others, really opened uh, my eyes to, you know, uh, you know, wow, you know, there are ambitious entrepreneurs doing it, what I later would call the evergreen way. We should probably say that that story is told and much of your background in a uh, an article that Bo Burlingham wrote for Inc. Magazine a few years ago. Uh, I think if, if somebody Googles Bo Burlingham and Dave Wharton, they'll probably find the article or they can go to your website, the uh, tugboatinstitute.com. And I, I believe you have it on your uh, your homepage. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It's a great article. Bo, Bo really was um, really got it. And that was wonderful. He's a, he's a wonderful writer. You were uh, you were talking about the importance of uh, how companies treat people and you know the culture that they create and that's something that always intrigues me and I'm always curious about and I'm wondering if you have an answer to this question that I, I like to ask people. Do you think uh, what do you think comes first? Do you need a great culture to build a great company or do you need a successful great company to pay for a great culture? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I believe that the first employees that you hire uh, are so critically important. And are they of high character and high capability? And if they are, you've actually you're you're starting on the right track. And um, and the culture will start to come forth from you and those individuals. And you may not even be able to articulate it. You may not even be able to put it on paper. But there'll be a, a stage where you hit about 60 or 70, maybe 75 employees, where you're going to have to because it's going to get to a scale where employees don't know the story. They don't know the, the kind of the word-of-mouth culture and maybe haven't even had a chance to spend much time with you individually. And so it becomes really important to codify those. And so often you see people you know, do the retreats and they say, who are we really and what do we stand for? And they, they basically just put words to the way they've been behaving and treating each other. So um, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but clearly you have to have, if it's on the evergreen path, you have to have a business that can start generating cash for you early in its life cycle so you can uh, sustain the path. But also, I think the culture, you know, that should naturally come from the quality of the individuals you bring to the team initially. And and you've seen this too, Lauren. Every entrepreneur is going to make mistakes on this front, right? And the thing to sure. do is uh, there's kind of a, a process every entrepreneur has to go through of kind of learning how to calibrate people and judge people. And um, and I, the only way I know how to do it is people just have to go through it. <laughs> and then they realize, wow, okay, that didn't work. Um, then they try something oh, that didn't quite work, but there'll be a moment where it just clicks, and suddenly that's also I think when the culture starts getting cemented, you start realizing the things that um, you didn't notice before, but you value greatly in your team, and its attitude towards each other, its attitude towards its customers, and so um, you know that, I think that process is, is natural, and, and entrepreneurs should not beat themselves up too much for making what you know arguably is a hiring mistake um it's okay I and mean, that's part of your maturing as a leader <laughs> it's not just okay it's inevitable right. um but i think you know with one of the important points that you make is that it's easier to control this if you actually control the business if your focus is on you know getting the returns you need to get for an investor it's much harder to think about you know are you running the business the way you really want to run it yeah, and, and let's talk about that just for a minute because you know the expectation when bringing an outside investor is that there's going to be a certain amount of growth in that company every year so that the investor can see what they expect to be an attractive return. And so you have to, in today's markets, have a very high growth profile to get a top-tick valuation someday on an exit. 
in the context of an evergreen company where you're building for a very long period of time, you may decide not to grow your business for a year or two to kind of get a better handle on what's happening, you know, what's happening in your culture, what's happening with your customers, what's happening in the markets. And I would argue that's very healthy. Um, in the context of you've got, you know, let's say three venture capitalists on your board and you say, look, I'm going to stop growing the company for the next two years. Most of them, if not all, are going to say, no, (laughs) that's not going to work. You're going to figure this out and you're going to get this thing growing faster, which can lead to cultural erosion. It can lead to wasting capital. It can lead to all kinds of... That's because they have a timeline in mind. They want to get their money back after a a certain period. And if you take a couple of years to to try to course correct, the the timeline is not going to be met. Yeah. And they have to go back to their partners and explain, yeah, remember I told you I thought this company would do $100 million in revenue in four years. Well, we're going to do $7 million in revenue for the next two years. And the partner's going to go, what? What the hell happened there? You know, that, that's not a conversation you want to have <laughs> with your partners, right? Um, and, but we see this in Evergreens. In fact, we've got one that's uh, kind of up here where I live up in Sun Valley, Idaho area called Power Engineering. They actually don't have a target growth rate for, for the future year. And their general view is that um, – and they've grown, I think, kind of 15 16% for 40 years in a row. So they've actually built a very large global company. Um, I can't get into their exact numbers, but uh, but their view is is that you know we we don't know where the market's going to be year to year, and so some years the market's going to give us more, and some years it's going to give us less, and we kind of make those plans on a shorter term basis, but we don't have an ar- overarching annual you got to hit this growth rate. I mean they're not GE capital, right? That kind of or GE that mindset. But what's wonderful is that some years they might grow at twenty twenty five percent a year, and other years they might grow at two or three because they're trying to kind of catch up with all the growth from the prior year. So it's a very much kind of a, a jagged line, not not a smooth curve that everybody wants to see in a business school case. And that's evergreen. That's kind of being very honest and realistic about how businesses grow. So something that's come up uh, at both of your summits that I've attended, um, and that's just kind of in the air, uh, is a, a certain dissatisfaction with capitalism, the way it's being practiced in this country right now. Uh, I think it's particularly strong among millennials. I know I hear it from my millennial kids. Um, do you have you picked up on that too? And do you see Evergreen as something of an antidote to that? Yeah, I I, I do. I do. I, I think I've seen the same survey you've seen. I think it was done by Harvard Business School that said you know fifty one percent of millennials don't believe in capitalism. And you're like what? I mean, what's worked better? You know, we've brought a I think people say over a billion people out of poverty through ca- capitalism, if not more. And uh, but yeah, I think that you it's know, easy to see the flaws. It, absolutely, and and you know nobody wants to see people jumping up and down and celebrating that they just made two or three billion dollars selling a company with 19 employees. I mean, it just, there's a sense of fairness around that, right? Um, but I, I, I'd say most are, are evergreens. They, they don't worry about that. Again, they're not looking for external validation, and they're really focused on their employees, their customers, their communities, you know, the, the relationships they all have with their families. That's a very positive thing. It's a very positive thing, and I think uh, it's the best of capitalism is evergreen. I think that I... I, I really believe that. And I'm not saying every evergreen company is perfect because they're not. But if you really live by these seven values, that's a very good. That's a very good set of values to operate from. Do you see it gaining momentum? I do. I do. And I think I think it's something that needs to be discovered. And that's why I'm I'm really happy to be on your show. And I appreciate you giving us a chance to talk about it because I think as people are exposed to the idea, hopefully it opens their minds to, yeah, there are other ways to build businesses. And this particular one, you know, it's, a, it's an individual choice. This is a better fit for me. That just And, and people know that. They know that. They, they, it's almost, it's a visceral reaction, which is, oh, yeah, I love Evergreen as a name. I love these values. This is how I want to operate, or I have the way I am operating. And so I think some of it is, uh, it's giving uh, a language to folks who are doing it already, and, and, and we want to get that out. It's, it's allowing new entrepreneurs to kind of see that there's another path. I think that's kind of neat. Um, I, I'll, t- I'll share a quick uh, story where I, I, I sometimes present back at Stanford Business School where I, I'm an alumni, and, and I used an opportunity last time I was there to kind of talk about Evergreen at the end of my conversation. It was a conversation about entrepreneurship. And um, yeah, I'd say a good half of the students there really didn't find this interesting. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and probably another quarter were like maybe slightly intrigued. Um, <laughs> 
But afterwards, I probably had 12 or 15 students come to me and say, oh, my gosh, this has been the best presentation I've heard all year because this is actually speaking directly to how I feel about business and the kind of what I want in, in the business I'm either going to be running or taking over from my family. And so that was really exciting for me. I mean, we're right in the heart of Silicon Valley, you know. And so, you know, was that 10 or 15% of the people in the room? Probably. I mean, That's great. Overwhelming. But it was, it, it's enough. Let's, so, uh, let's see if we can get in a question here. Catherine in North Carolina, welcome to Mind Your Business. Hi, thank you. Um, I had a question. I have an idea for a product. Um, unfortunately, there are two people who already own the patent on a product that's similar but not exactly the same. Um, and I was wondering if you knew any um, info or had any information on laws surrounding patents and if I could potentially, because it is slightly different, um, if I could potentially go ahead and produce it and then um, maybe buy the patents after the fact, since no one is actually doing anything with them, or would it, what do you know what my options are surrounding that? You know, I think your best option is to uh, consult with a patent attorney, and uh, there's a clinic at the University of Pennsylvania. If you uh, if you contact me on Twitter, I'm at L Feldman. I can give you the contact info there. Dave, you're not a patent attorney, are you? I'm not, unfortunately, so sorry. <laughs> uh, I don't think we have the, the specific information to help you, but but if you uh, if you contact me on Twitter, I think I can put you in touch with people who who can help. Thank you okay, for your perfect. phone call, Catherine. The, yeah, no problem. All right, thank you. Appreciate thank it. You. Um, that is a question that does come up a lot, um, but <laughs> let's let the, uh, the experts deal with that. Dave, is there a... Is there a political aspect to this? Do your um, do your members tend to fall in one camp or another? You know, n- n- not as far as I can tell, and and it's something that we really don't want to bring into our community. Um, it, it, one thing that I think is wonderful, as I said earlier, you know, we've got people coming from every state in the United States, and these are peers, and they're very much value aligned, and they really enjoy each other. And I don't think they know whether they're coming from left or right. Because, again, what's unifying them is this kind of core sense and belief around what, what business should be in America. And, again, I think it's a very aspirational belief. And so there's a lot more in common than, than differences between, between our members when we're, when we're focused on, on, on Evergreen and, and the values. So um, I, I, think it, I think it's full spectrum. I, uh, you know, in hanging out at your summits, I've I've heard literally no discussion of politics. But I was wondering if I was just in the wrong place. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting, and I think it's, it's part of the ethos of the communities. You know, is you know, take off your armor and really allow yourself to be authentic with each other. And you know, if people get into political conversations, it, it's so it so quickly ruins that 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 feeling right there's a defensiveness and a judgment in it and so i'm just super pleased that you know the group is focused on i think things that are much more important like you know how, how what else can i do to treat my employees better what else can i do to help uh, raise my kids in a more healthy way you know what else could we do to be of service to our community you know i that's so much more valuable and, and, and so much more impactful well dave warden thank you so much for joining us today and uh, for sharing your story Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. I really appreciate it. If you want to keep up with Dave, you can go to tugboatinstitute.com and you can follow the organization on Twitter at Evergreen Journ. That's short for journal, Evergreen, J-O-U-R-N. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but we're here live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. My thanks to audio engineer Dion Simpkins and producer Michelle Stucker. You can find me on Twitter at L Feldman. Until next time, I'm Lauren Feldman, and this has been Mind Your Business on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 